Yeah, because when you start recording, I can start feeling awkward. So that'll be good. Okay. I'm recording now, so oh, good. awkward away. I feel awkward now. Okay. So I guess the first thing that I realize is that this whole podcast may be for nothing. Because the idea that I wanted to do was a podcast for indie Mac and iOS developers, whatever indie may mean. That's your definition. But for independent developers, about the business side of running a business, because we all know how to develop in theory. But running a business and doing marketing is the really hard part. And so I had this great idea, and then I realized there's already a podcast out there called Release Notes. And not only does it exist, they have their own conference. That's true. So now I wonder, are we stepping on their toes? Should we go in a different direction? What makes us worthwhile to listen to over release notes? Um, well, I will start by saying that I have not really, I know of release notes, but I have not listened to it. Um, so <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, um, I feel like this conversation in, in many different regards doesn't, happen enough and i feel like um i would hope that there's space for multiple people to share information i I don't know i mean i guess you know my take on all of this has been that from talking to a lot of different developers most of us get into this space not because we want to start a business but because but for other reasons right yeah Um, and and i think that's an important distinction because when you talk to other startups um you know, in the Bay Area or something, there are a lot of companies that exist in part or in whole because the people who started it kind of wanted to start a company um, as opposed to either, you know, I have this idea or it happens organically or something like and they, they exist for a much more specific or, or from a much more concrete point of I want a company. Um, and I think it's a completely different way in which we think about the business. You know, like when I talk to inside our company, um, we only do this other stuff because we have to in order to keep writing code, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, can you know, I, I feel like a lot of people, both in our community and people who sort of sit on the periphery of our community, um, probably don't understand that and, and how that drives our motivations in terms of how we present ourselves to the world and how we choose what we want to work on. So I don't know. Um, I don't know if there's a conversation there or not. Yeah, I think there could be. Um, I know I got into it purely as a hobby. It's something I was passionate about and wanted to do. And I initially sold my first product for all of $7 because it seemed like well, I built something, and if it's going to be a real thing, I need to charge some amount for it. And over time, I could just see this the possibility of a business kind of branch out in front of me. I was like, wow, I could do something I really enjoy full time, and I could earn a living and support my family with this. And so it didn't happen right away, but by turning into more of a real business, I enabled those opportunities to keep happen, happening. And I kind of made my own luck, and it eventually became a real business. And I, I assume, but I guess I don't know for sure, um, you've not taken any sort of external funding to run your business. Is that true? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay. Although my, my grandmother slips me a 20 every now and then. <laughs> and you report that on your... Annual. Yes, I do. Yeah. 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 Um, 
No, and and neither neither have we in in the divergent media world. Um, and I think that's also a distinction because it means you grow at a ver- in a very different way. Um, and it also means there are things you can't do. Um, we often have conversations where we get to the point of saying like, there's this awesome idea we have, this product we really want to build, but we can't build it at our scale. Like to do this would require being at a much different scale and we would have to take funding or be a part of a large organization or something. And I think that also shapes what is an indie developer and what's not to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I would, I mean, I would love to farm out the monotonous businessy aspects of my business and purely just do the software side of things. Like I would love to outsource the customer support. I would love to out, I kind of do outsource the accounting and the bookkeeping, but as an indie business, I feel so attached to everything. I don't know that I would trust somebody to do my customer support because I'm such a niche product. I don't know if there are very few people that have the domain knowledge to be able to answer all the random questions that my customers come to me with. So I do kind of feel trapped by my smallness that it keeps me from growing bigger if I wanted to. I I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, that really personal relationship is the kind of thing that you can only offer at this sort of scale that we're at of, you know, one or two people, you know, yeah. because any bigger than that, like if you outsource your tech support and someone asks a question, like you're not going to give, you're likely not going to give your tech support access to your Git repository to say, like, feel free to look something up in the code and they're not going to have that skill set anyways. Um, but it means we can have a much more personal relationship with the customer. Um, so many times, you know, the, the answer to a question from one of our people is, uh, here's a build, go give it a try. I think it should solve your issue for it and it'll be in the next release. And being able to do that, you know, we've certainly seen over the years, it really sort of engenders a good feeling and it means people are willing to trust you on things and give you the benefit of the doubt in a way that they might not otherwise. Absolutely. I mean, there have been countless occasions where a customer has had a bug report or a feature suggestion. And I know in my head that to enable that, it's like maybe a minute worth of work to create a new build with that functionality. And there have been many times where I just initially reply back with a zip file saying, here you go, it's fixed. Let me know if you like it. And then that becomes the next point release. Absolutely. And there, I mean, there's no way a real company, quote, real company could do that because they have build processes, they have release processes. But for something like me, you know, just it's just another point release, get it out there. And that level of customer service just can't be done at scale, I don't think. I agree. Do you, with your products, um, do you find that you become a, a resource uh, in general for your customers? Do you get a lot of sort of um, broad, vagrant questions, for example, or things like that? Yes, um, I have become kind of the virtual host Apache guy on the internet. People come to me with questions about setting a virtual host on Linux systems. And I'm happy to help, and if it doesn't take long and I can answer their question, I usually do, thinking maybe one day they'll remember my name and buy one of my apps. But yeah, I get so many feedback emails and question emails that don't directly relate to my product specifically, or very often they have a problem with, for example, installing WordPress, but because they used my app initially to set up that website, 
they feel like their WordPress problem now falls onto me to help. Yeah. So it's all kinds of tangentially related problems that I've had to kind of become an expert on in order to keep them happy. Well, and it becomes an issue where you don't want to just you know say no especially if it's something where there is an easy answer but yeah exactly you always risk then inviting you know becoming the go-to you know we we get calls every now and again where someone will be saying you know i've got this issue between my adobe software and my blackmagic video card and we're not in this mix at all but they know that we're sort of an impartial third party who has to deal with all these people and they just want to say like which of these companies is lying to me Uh, (laughs) and, and you know we like being able to play that role if it's in a way where we're not becoming their go-to tech support for everything, but where we can build ourselves up as a good resource in the community. But it is a hard line. Yeah, and I feel terrible when I do have to draw that line and simply say, I can't help you, but Google can. And I'll, I try not to reply back with a Google search, but oftentimes it's it's the best answer. Yeah, absolutely. And there are cases as well um, that you know we get into at least where we need to tell a customer to do something that is not strictly within the within the letter of the copyright law, for example. Like, you need to move this file from a computer that has this program installed to your computer, um, where it's, you know, like a system component or something, um, where we can point them to a blog post, but I'm not going to walk them through the steps directly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gets into some hairy categories, but... Um, that's just the nature of the video world, I think. Yeah, and I think kind of related to that, I'm just thinking along these lines, something that may make our two businesses kind of unique compared to going back to the old topic of release notes is we're not writing consumer software. We're Both of our products are extremely technical and extremely niche. And I feel like that's going to give us a whole different type of clients than... You know, somebody like Day One who's building a journaling app and they have a wonderful product, but they have such a broad appeal. Yeah, I wonder I wonder how that differs day to day. And I think this gets to one of the areas that I just find fascinating in terms of indie development in general, is I really don't know, you know, how what the day one customer base looks like in do regular mac users buy software i guess and and would they get to the point of buying day one or if you're buying an app for your mac are you inherently somewhere along that continuum towards you know hardcore nerd yeah i would love to know i happen to be on their website this afternoon because i was looking at their new apple watch app which looks great and i do remember reading the line they said they serve quote millions of users but of course, that could be 950,000 iOS users and 50,000 Mac users. Right. Or it could be even smaller than that. I don't know. But I don't know which came first. Was it the day one iOS app or the Mac app or at the, the same Mac time? It's been around for longer. I seem to recall it from back in yeah. the day. Um, I kind of wonder, so, so in these things we're talking about in terms of relating with customers and being able to be really nimble, um, where do you think that ends? Where do you think you sort of scale out of that? I mean, you know, we're sort of doing it at two people in our company. Um, do you think you can do it with a four-person group? I mean, I, I really wonder when I look at the sort of panic of the world or Omni or, you know, these companies that are not an Adobe and they are not, you know, a big enterprise software company, but they're bigger, much bigger you know, than either of us, you know, when does that end? I think it's, 
it's got to be like that old line about the Supreme Court and the pornography case. <laughs> they say, you know it when you see it. I think it's just such a case-by-case basis. And Panic and Omni, they used, in my mind, they were indie companies. But now, God bless them, they're businesses. They, I, I feel like they've crossed that threshold. And they both provide stellar customer support. But you're never, I don't think you're ever going to get a, a build emailed to you an hour after you make a feature, feature suggestion from them. Right. And that's not a knock against them. That's just, they're too big at that point. So for me, I think if I scaled out and had, I think if I had another developer working with me full time, I think that would be the point for me where I could no longer offer that level of support. Because then the decisions you make as a developer start influencing somebody else and you start having to coordinate everything you do and that necessarily infers you have to have some sort of process in place. And I think that's where it breaks down. Yeah, and, and it's certainly, I, I would say, um, until we sort of arrived at our current set of tools and platforms in, in terms of how we operate, it was it was definitely more problematic because you end up with a lot of just weird stuff out in the world um, with a couple people working on it. Yeah. And I think at this point, we've, you know, after a few years of this, have sort of figured that out. Um, but there were definitely growing plant pains along the way. One of the things I wonder about when I think about indie developers is, um, you know, is is there this continuum, right? You go from sort of one or two people with a, a product or a couple products, you know, you can sort of see how you might grow organically to the point of being panic-sized. Um, but is there then a continuum that continues on to being Adobe-sized? Or d- is the way that happens now you have a startup idea, you go to Y Combinator or something, and then you take a you know $15 million first round and become big right away. If you want, if your product works best, if you have millions of users, then maybe you go the Y Combinator route. But if it's just literally providing a service and somebody gives you $10 for it, then why can't you start small? I mean, what, I don't see what the big hurry is why you wouldn't want to grow organically like a day one. Yeah. I mean, you keep full control over your company. You don't give up 50% of your equity. I don't, yeah, that's a tough question. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess one of the things I'm not sure about is do you reach a point in scaling where you, you need to sort of scale your personnel ahead of your revenue in order to continue to grow. And I, and I think that's something we even encounter in, in Divergent is like, you know, there's a point at which the way to scale our sales growth would be to have someone who's going out and like doing on-site sales and marketing or, you know, doing some of those things, but you can't really justify that person proactively. And that's where, you know, businesses that have external funding have the opportunity to scale up their staffing before revenues falls. And I wonder about that. Yeah, that's absolutely a risk because how do you hire somebody to do a job that you can't yet pay them to do? Right, based it's on a, it, presumed it, returns. Yeah, it's a big risk. And I've been with companies where they have hired salespeople in advance, and I think they pay them mostly on a commission structure, so it was up to them to earn their own paycheck. So... Yeah, that's if that's the way you have to grow, then I think you just have to take the risk and do it with the understanding 
of your employees is that it might not work out. Yeah, yeah. I And I do wonder whether that, I mean, the chicken and egg nature of adding staffing, I think, becomes a big constraint for any small developer that isn't interested in, in making that big leap up. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, really hard to, especially if you're, looking to be sort of honest about your current state and um i don't know i i would be curious to know from other developers who've made that jump and i and i struggle to think in our community are there others that are you know real examples um you know panic omni rogue amoeba i guess um i'm trying to think you know one of the things that got me thinking about this topic is we were having the conversation of looking at who our competitors were and realizing that there's this whole category of people who compete with us who we don't think of as peers, even though in many ways they, they actually may be, which is um, with our products, there's a whole set of companies based out of um, Taiwan or other parts of China that sell Mac software that's um, rebranded open source stuff or things like that, but you know similar pricing, similar functionality. And they're Mac developers, right? They're shipping Mac-only applications that do these things, and yet I think of them in this completely different way. Um, and they seem to have a completely different approach to how they think about the market. And But when I think of indie developers, I don't think of them. I think of Panic and Omni. Um, yeah. yeah, so I've had, I've had two competitors over the years um, one is still in business very much. One went out of business. I don't know, don't know the story behind that. Um, and one of those competitors, that's the one that's still around, is MAMP, MAMP.info. And so they make the downloadable MySQL, Apache, and PHP installation thing that you can run and just have a web server up and running very quickly. And I've often wondered what they're like internally because they project themselves on their public website as not quite as a corporation, but definitely bigger than one guy working in a spare bedroom. So I would love to know exactly how many employees they have, how big they are, what their revenue stream is like for a product that is basically what I'm doing as a one-man shop and have been doing for eight years. I would love to know how we compare. And if they are on the order of maybe 10 employees, maybe more, I don't know. I would love to know what all those people are doing. Yeah. And, and how they got to that point. Yeah, um, I would love to learn from them. It's one of the interesting things, I think, about going to... Um, so last last week, uh, we were exhibiting at the NAB trade show in Las Vegas that we go to every year. It's horrible. Um, yeah. And so there's... I, I don't know the total number of exhibitors, but it's all three halls of the Las Vegas Convention Center, you know, millions of square feet. And it's really interesting to walk around the section of the show where we are, which is the smaller booths, um, and to try and sort of un- untangle who this company is. Because if you walk by the Divergent Media booth, you're going to see Mike and I and our, our friend Mark was helping us out. So you'll th- see three of us and computers and nice signage and printed stuff. Um, and we often have people who come in and they don't sort of realize until we give them a card or something that says, you know, CEO <laughs> or in my case, employee number two, um, that this is actually a very small company because I don't think, you know, consumers are in the mindset of thinking that, companies exist that are this small and and i did the same thing to a company that was across the hall from us or across the aisle from us um they were selling like hardware systems for slow motion and um 
it wasn't until later in the show that I realized that the, the guy who was there was the sort of founder and CEO, and the woman who worked in the booth was his daughter. Um, and it's actually just a very small company because they projected this this appearance of being like a full-featured hardware company, essentially. Um, I know we get when people call, you know, people who call and then call back like a day later and they're like, I talked to someone the other day. It's like, no, you talk to me because I'm the only one who answers the phone. Yeah. Um, it, it's just interesting to think about what, what companies are in terms of their actual scale and the way they're able to project themselves. I've long struggled with how to project myself, my company, and I've been a little schizophrenic about it because one part of me thinks I should own the fact that it's just me. I should, you know, really knock into people's heads that if you email me, if you call me, you're getting an answer from the guy who wrote the software you're having trouble with or the software that you hopefully love. <laughs> but on the, other, on the other hand, especially as I move more and more towards business sales, I need to project an air of stability and confidence that maybe one guy working out of his basement doesn't offer. Absolutely. And so that's what and so that's why I have a 1-800 number and I never answer it. I return every call I get probably within an hour, but I never answer it live. But when I do return those calls and they know they're calling click on Tyler software and when I say, "Hey, this is Tyler, how can I help you?" <laughs> They're usually flabbergasted. I mean, they usually stop and like don't know what to say at first. So you can really surprise people with your responsiveness and just by defeating their expectations of what they're calling. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I mean, this, the same goes for us. You know, we do have, we have an eight hundred number. Um, when when you call, it says like press one for sales and press two for tech support. They all, no matter what you press, it's going to ring through to you know my cell phone essentially. Um, and if if I'm able to, I'll answer it, which is, you know, usually if I'm not sort of in the climbing gym or something, I'll answer it. Um, so sometimes people ask what our business hours are, and it's sort of, well, if I'm awake and not busy, um, but I don't, you know, I make it a habit of if I can help you, I will try and help you. Um, and I'm not going to artificially limit myself in that way. And, you know, I think it's something we can offer. Well, let me ask you this, and this may be a wholly different conversation, but I mentioned I usually don't answer the telephone calls, and the reason for that is that I used to, and by and large, the people that called me for tech support were extremely difficult and almost always borderline assholes, and maybe that was just luck of the draw. But the people who email me were always much nicer and easier to work with. And so I just kind of got beat down and I stopped answering their phone live and waiting to hear their message before I would call them back. I think ours, um, and we used to have your approach when, um, before I was able to be full-time with the company. So when I had a day job, I didn't answer divergent calls at my day job. Um, and so they just went to voicemail and, and I'd return them as I was able. Um, I think our customers, we certainly get some of that and we get some real crazy people who call. Um, we also, I think, you know, some of our users are the, just dipping a toe into the video space and, and they just want the reassurance of, 
of talking yeah. to someone. Um, the one other category I'd outline, especially with our scope box product is people use it on set sometimes and they may actually not have internet access or they may be, you know, on a very, very tight time schedule where they're calling them and they need something answered because, you know, they're about to roll camera or something. And so that, that's uh, one of the big reasons that we try and answer the phone support because even a 15 minute turnaround on calling someone back could mean that we weren't able to help them. Yeah, that, that's a very valid point. Maybe I should make a more of a case of doing that from now on. As you hear my Law & Order ringtone kick in. <laughs> did, that, did that come through? Yeah, yep. Okay, nice. Anyway. Hmm. What do you think... Um, one other category I've been just sort of curious about when I think about the indie dev world is that I know a lot of indie devs um, have a company and sell software but spend some or most of their time doing consulting work. Um, you know, how do you think about that? And, and do you, have you talked to other devs and how do they think about that in terms of my products versus the other stuff? Yeah, I've, I hate feeling this way, but I almost feel embarrassed to admit that I do take consulting work or that I do have a full-time job sometimes. Because for two years, all I did was just my company and I was so proud that I had gotten to that point and was sustaining myself with just my app revenue and so it was a little bit of an embarrassment when I went back to work full-time because we had a baby and I, it shouldn't feel that way but I felt like going back to our original point I was no longer truly indie because I had an additional source of revenue but I think there are tons of people make their way by doing freelance as well uh, I don't want to speak too much for them, but I know listening to the Release Notes podcast, those guys, at least one of them, does quite a bit of consulting on the side through his company. So I think it's 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 a very valid stream of revenue. It's very, it's completely fine to go that route if that's what allows you to essentially lead the life you want to live. I think that's the main point, right? Is um, as I sort of said at the beginning, like we, you know, we do indie development because it lets us sort of live the existence that we feel good about um and i think on the other hand there might come a time when you know we don't want to run the company at all anymore and that might mean you know selling out or just closing it down or whatever and and that doesn't have to mean that you failed it can just mean your priorities shifted um and i think we we don't sort of often in, in, we in the broader sort of American public, we don't necessarily allow for companies to stop being companies uh, for any reason other than like actual failure. Yeah. Like, you know, if you close your coffee shop because you don't really want to run a coffee shop anymore, that means you failed. Well, no, maybe you just want to do something else. And I think it's the same for, for all this stuff um, because, you know, I have a toe in both worlds. I know you do too. Like there are a lot of really nice things about having a job, a J-O-B job, um, and, you know, then having time when you're not at your J-O-B job. Um, you know, that world is not horrible either. I've often thought what it exactly it would take for, you know, a larger company to sweep in and make me an offer I couldn't refuse and sell the company. And I've kind of fantasized about that a few times, trying to come up with numbers in my head. But if I can brag a little bit, I've... I'm to the point where it's a nice stream of recurring revenue and I don't know that I would want to give that up. I don't know that 
even with my job, job, if I would want to give up that, would what's essentially kind of become disposable income to a certain degree. Sure. It's a very tough question to, and I think I'd also miss it. I would simply miss the interaction with the customers and writing the software because I'm in this job, I'm in this industry because it's what I love to do, and I don't know that I would want to give that up. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. I mean, I do um, still some consulting work, and it's the same deal. It's like I like that it's it's a separate stream of revenue that I don't include in my budgeting, um, and it's you know when it's there it's great and if not you know i'm not out on the street um although if you had a laptop being out on the street wouldn't be well, that bad yeah that's true <laughs> but yeah i don't know um and i it 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 just is it is funny how it is so hard to sort of from from via the web right to understand what is going on in this space because people are able to look like legitimate companies whether they're tiny companies or giant companies or fraud companies or you know shovelware companies um you know and i guess that's why going to wwdc and other things can be so valuable but yeah you really have no way of knowing until you strike up a personal connection with them yeah yeah and even then i think not because people don't want to share but like you expressed you know there's some embarrassment about sharing you know the reality of your company yeah uh, Jared Sinclair kind of famously shared his revenue numbers last summer after he kind of folded on his RSS app on Red. And then I followed up with a follow-up post of my own, uh, sharing my own numbers. And that got quite a bit of Hacker News attention, for better or for worse. And so putting yourself out there is scary, but I got so much positive feedback from people simply coming up to me in real life at meetup groups and people emailing me to say, oh my god, you're, we're in exactly the same boat. It feels so good knowing there's somebody else out there doing the same stuff because when all you're looking at are flashy websites of other companies, you don't know how many people are behind that, and you can feel isolated and alone. And I hope by us doing this podcast, we can grow the shared nature of this community and get people to, I don't know, share more. Yeah. I mean, like, I think when I originally started thinking about this topic, I was framing it in terms of what does success look like? And I think that's, you know, in hindsight, obviously, the the wrong framing, because of course, success is whatever feels like success to you. And, you know, if your company is doing, you know, well enough that it's not making you sad, um, (laughs) you know, that's great. Um, And if you see ways that you can keep doing better, that's great too. And you should work on that. But, um, you know, I think the important thing is that we're not all trying to become massive. Um, and in having talked to other developers as part of just reaching out to people, it's like very clear that some people really only want a part-time gig or they don't want any of the stress that comes with trying to grow bigger aside from the organic nature of in the calving website, you know? Absolutely. I really like the idea of success being what you define it to be. And that's what it should be. It should be if you're happy. Great. Yeah, exactly. And I'm pretty happy. How about you? Are you pretty happy? Yeah, I'm very happy. Yeah. Great. Well, we've been doing this for, wow, 34 <laughs> yeah. minutes. That just flew by. Yep. Cool. You want to press the stop button? Sure.